As has already been announced and certainly mentioned, we're thankful, each of us, for the opportunity to assemble and to gather tonight. And as we do that, we're always appreciative of the ability that's ours to sing and to praise God as we've done, to give a portion of consideration in prayer to exalting and praising and making requests of our Heavenly Father, and also to give thought to a section of the Word of God as we shall do for the next few moments. You've already noted from the reading tonight that we will turn our attention as Brother Lester read from the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to John, let me invite you to be turning to that location in your Bible, and we will invest some effort to considering the opening 11 verses of that chapter. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And as we do that, we of course will give thought to a woman taken in adultery. That's quite often the description given to this section in that book. And so as we give thought to it tonight, I hope that we can begin by looking at a way that some times you will find this passage utilized. This opening introductory slide simply brings the thought before us. There are many sections and passages and verses in the Word of God which, quite frankly, can be misused, misapplied, and misunderstood. And yet, we understand that when that happens, what great damage can well follow as those texts are used to teach what was never in the mind of God. I've listed a few of them that may well, well fall into that category, but I would offer you the thought that it's probably true that this passage in the 8th chapter of John also fits nicely into that category for reasons that you and I shall note shortly tonight. May I say, though, as we begin, it, sh it is certainly our strong desire to rightly divide the word of truth to follow the banner, the mantra, if you will, of 2 Timothy 2.15, which reminds all of us, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And with that, let's then begin by first reflecting on the actual passage. What is it that the Bible says? And only once we've done that, then will we turn our attention to some observations, some lessons that will follow from it. So, let me begin reading in verse number 1, if I might, and let's just read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning He came again into the temple, and all the people came unto Him, and He sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto Him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto Him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
Now that reading of the first 11 verses of that chapter begins to bring some of these comments before us. And again, at first, we will simply cast a spotlight on the actual text itself. And so if you'd like to follow along with some of those statements there, I will just walk us through the passage. Isn't it true by this time that the popularity of the Lord had already begun to grow in an amazing way? In fact, in the previous chapter, John 7, verse 31, you notice with me there, the text reminds us many of the people believed on Him. By virtue of the miracles, by virtue of the actual teaching He had done, that clearly was distinct from the teaching that was familiar from, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. His popularity had already grown tremendously. And so it was that that next slide points this out to us rather quickly. We begin to see in that earlier chapter, even though we had seen it previously, that some of those Jewish officials had already begun to be quite fearful of Jesus. If His popularity continues to grow this way, if His influence continues to grow like this, they knew that their influence would decrease, that their consideration of directness with regard to the people would decrease. And obviously they did not wish for that to be the case. And therefore they began to take measures. They began to have thoughts about means whereby they could discredit Jesus. That they could in essence set Him up as one who would not be favored by the people. I would suggest to you as you come to that third comment, then that takes us to the opening scene of this chapter. Verse 1 reads, He had gone to the Mount of Olives, and early the next morning, early in the morning the text says, He came to the temple. So that was in Jerusalem. And it was there, of course, where much of the Lord's teaching had taken place, and much more would take place, of course, in the days that were ahead. But it quickly points out, All the people came unto Him. That we might pause immediately and note something intriguing. Though it was early in the morning... A large group had already assembled. Now sometimes there are those who aren't as excited about the early morning hours. And yet you'll note here that the popularity of the Lord had already grown to the point that though it was early, there was already a large group assembled at the temple for the express purpose of hearing Him teach and hearing Him set forward the things which He was going to teach on that occasion. Verse number 2 closes by saying, He sat down. May I point out, that was a little bit different in that day compared to today. Normally today, the gentleman will stand to teach. Jesus sat down to teach. It was typical among that day and time for the teacher, the one who was doing the presentation, to sit down to make that presentation. That had also been true back in Luke 5, verses 1 to 11, hadn't it? Here, as Jesus sat down, it says He taught them from that posture, from that position. Now verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. You can imagine the disruption that was then occurring. Here was Jesus in the midst of a presentation, in the midst of a discussion, a discourse, a dialogue, and into that midst, here were some scribes and Pharisees, and they forcefully bring a woman. You can imagine the commotion that would have been the case the kind of disruption to the Lord's teaching that that would have brought about. And it says, when they had set her in the midst. So they didn't just remain at a distance. They didn't just stay at the back of the auditorium, if you will, though there was no auditorium. 
they brought her apparently up right near the center where the Lord was teaching, right up right basically before him. Now you'll notice on that slide, I ask you to observe that as they brought this woman, verse number 4 says, They say unto him, so they now in essence took the opportunity to speak, interrupting the, pres- the one doing the presenting, namely Jesus. And they say, Master, verse 4, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now you can again perhaps imagine the circumstances taking place as they had captured the Lord's attention and no doubt the attention of virtually all that were there assembled. They now make the assertion, this woman was taken in adultery. In fact, in the very act. Now we aren't told how long she had been in essence under arrest. She perhaps had been arrested at some time previously and had been held under arrest or in ward. And they saw this as the perfect opportunity to now dispose of the case by hauling her in before Jesus. You might take note that the word that is used in verses 3 and 4, it says, "...they brought unto him a woman." I've asked you to notice on the slide. The Greek word that's translated there is the word brought... It can be used with a bit of latitude, admittedly. But you'll notice it can mean to accompany or to lead. But it can also, in fact, mean a forceful way. It's almost as if they may well have dragged her here. That would not be outside the bounds of the word. But we don't know exactly the formalism, but otherwise, at least she was forcefully brought. And with that said... Verse number 4 says, This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now as you continue to the bottom of that slide with me, the group now made one final statement. Verse number 5, Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So in other words, these scribes and Sadducees, or these scribes and Pharisees, they now say, This woman, Master... Given the fact she was taken in adultery, Moses and the law commanded that such ought to be stoned. But what do you say? Now they again had at least given some lip respect to Jesus. They called Him Master. But then they presented this question, this dilemma. What about this woman? Moses and the law commanded that such a person as this ought to be stoned. But what do you say? Now as we transition to the next slide... Let's continue to look at what then took place. We are told something rather remarkable in the next verse, verse number 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. Might we take note? It wasn't their interest to dispose of this in a truthful fashion. The ultimate character of justice was not their prime priority. Their goal was to tempt Jesus that they might have something that they could use to accuse Him. We ought not forget that. The inspired writer has ensured us that that's a critical part of it. But let's note onward in that verse. It said, Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote on the ground. Now I'm told by those who are somewhat more familiar with the way and things in that part of the world that that's a typical way in which one basically makes it known that I have no intention of answering your question. In other words, you have asked, I will simply not cast attention to you, but rather do something else such as this. 
And in so doing, it's my way of confirming that it's not my intent to at least under these circumstances present to you an answer that you've requested. But could you note this with me in the next verse? So when they continued asking him, the Greek verb is very much to the point. It in essence describes an ongoing, continuous assertion. In other words, they weren't satisfied with any possibility that the Lord was not going to answer. They kept asking, Jesus, the woman's still here. What do you say? Master, the woman's still here. We want to hear what you have to say. They continued asking on and on. We aren't told how many times, but they continued asking. Verse number 7 tells us. But that verse goes on to say, He lifted up Himself. Remember, He'd stooped down to write on the ground. Now He lifted up Himself, and now He said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now might we pause long enough to say this. Remember, they had asked this and brought this circumstance before Him with the idea to tempt Him. The goal was to find something that they might use to accuse Him. It's fairly easy for us to appreciate how that this scenario would have accomplished that end. Consider the two possible answers the Lord in their mind might have given. Suppose Jesus said, Kill her. You said she's taken in adultery, stone her. If He had said that, He would have immediately been in somewhat of a problem with the Romans. Remember, the Romans controlled that area of Palestine. They were under Roman rule, and the Romans had taken from the Jews the capability of capital punishment. Jews couldn't put people to death. And therefore, if the Lord had said to kill her, they would have immediately, no doubt, brought word of that to Rome, and the Caesar would have learned about it. And this certainly would have caused perhaps a great deal of issue because they would have immediately claimed Jesus as an opponent to Rome. What if he had said, don't kill her? They would have immediately, and you and I know exactly what they would have said. They would have said, well, that means you oppose Moses, don't you? Because Moses said, kill her, and you tell us not to. It would appear that no matter how the Lord answered, at least in their mind, they had ammunition that they could use against him, and he used it against his cause to discredit his work, and to help to squash that popularity that he had come to enjoy. You and I can see again perhaps what they had in mind. As you and I revisit verse number 7, He now said, He that's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. As you can see on the slide, I've invited you to at least note some of these features and considerations. Verse 8, he stooped down and again wrote on the ground. So after he said, the one that's without sin, let him first cast a stone, he again stooped down. And isn't it interesting what then happens? Verse number 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their conscience. Those who heard this, those who had heard again what the Master had just said, they were pricked, convicted, bothered by their own conscience. That too should be significant in just a moment. And it says, they began to leave one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. So the oldest there present, 
began to slink out. Now, we should anticipate the crowd was still there. And this group had hauled in the woman before Jesus, but now of the group that had most recently come in, the oldest left. And then the next one's left. And all the way down to the last, the very last one that had even helped to bring this woman before Jesus, even he left. Not surprisingly then, the text says in verse 9, Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. The only ones remaining, again, other than the crowd that was there from the beginning, was Jesus and the woman. Isn't it odd? They had dragged the woman in, but they went off and left her. We'll have more to say about that in a moment. But finally, we arrive at verse 10. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said in verse 11, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now as you close that particular rehearsal of the text with me, I've offered you one final thought as to, I feel sure is the most popular way in which this passage is used. If you hear typical discussion of John 8, verses 1 to 11, if you read various references to it by authors and by those who would draw one's attention to it, almost invariably, it is used to teach what I've summarized at the bottom of that slide. May I summarize it like this? Here was a woman taken in adultery. The Old Testament law was clear. She was to be put to death. Jesus did not agree to it. And therefore, the conclusion that's often reached is, well, Jesus isn't that concerned about minute matters of the law. His grace will overrule it. In other words, you would only have to worry about matters like love and grace and the issues like that. And don't be so concerned about the minute law-keeping matters because after all, the woman, she wasn't put to death and the Lord in fact said so. You would also notice, if that be true that God isn't overly concerned with law-keeping, then it's easily possible thus to sing the praises of just be a morally good person and don't worry so much about the details. For that reason, there are some who take this easily to the point of using it to teach situation ethics. In other words, there is no absolute objective right and wrong. You arrive at the circumstances and situations of life, and in every circumstance, things may well be different. What's right one time may not be another. And they'll say, after all, the woman was an adulteress. Moses told, said she should be put to death. The Lord lived beneath the law, and He did not agree to it. So that must, mustn't mean then that in every case, what Moses said should, be abhor should be, in fact be followed. Now I say all of that with the hope that you will appreciate the danger that's in it. Does this passage teach that? Is it true it holds high the banner of situation ethics and claims and directly asserts that one really shouldn't be that concerned with law-keeping? Let's turn to the next slide. And let's take a more careful look at this scenario. And let's do so in the following way. Remember, we have at least painted the portrait that's now been put before us, that which the text, in fact, invited us to know. Now, 
Let's look with care about the details that are there and also the references to be seen in them. And let's study it, in fact, in a very careful way. The first observation might well be this. The very ones who had brought the woman said, Such should be put to death. Where had Moses said that? Let's go back and read it and see what he said. Would you revisit with me Leviticus 20, verse number 10? Wasn't it true that back at that time, Moses did, by the presentation of the things of God, make a very dramatic statement? And the man that committed adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. It wasn't just the woman. The man was to be put to death too. And if she was taken in the very act, where was the man? Isn't that a good question? You would think that if she was taken in the very act, he would have been easily captured as well. The man was no pair to be seen. At least they didn't bring him. May I say that Deuteronomy 22 verse 22 also has something to say about this. As we visit that passage again, the inspired writer encourages us to note the following. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an, adult, married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shalt thou put away evil from Israel. It's again exceedingly clear that not only was the woman to be put to death, it was also the man guilty of this matter of adultery. So the first thing you and I might note, here were these scribes and Pharisees who had brought the woman claiming she had been taken in the very act of adultery, but the man was not brought. That's our first clue that something rather sinister is taking place. Now you and I might note as we close that first matter, doesn't that cast a rather strong element of question on the credibility of their claim? If she had been taken in the very act, where was the man? What about point number two? What else might you and I rather easily observe? Remember, they had said that this woman was to be put to death. She, by the act of stoning, was to be put to death. Now we've noticed that these two passages spoke about putting the adulterer and the adulteress to death. Neither one particularly mentioned stoning. However, Moses did make reference to stoning, and it was a rather useful and rather oft-referenced matter as a means of putting people to death. May I ask you to note, though, under the second banner, when it came to stoning, there were some rather interesting things to be noted. Let's begin in Numbers 35, verse number 30. Near the close of that book of Numbers, the following rather interesting statement is made. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. You and I might again take an interesting observation to note that the inspired writer said, When any person is put to death, that is to say, this scenario was to play out in any instance of capital punishment. When any person was to be put to death, regardless of the crime, the matter of witnesses had to take center stage. And that passage in particular had said 
that murderer was to be put to death by the mouth, it says, of witnesses. One witness was not sufficient. Had to be at least two. The reason I say that is found in Deuteronomy verse 17. As you turn over there with me, we notice in verse 6 of that chapter that the interesting statement as follows is found. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. In other words, whether it be this woman supposedly taken in adultery, or any other that was to be put to death, there had to be at least two witnesses. One witness alone was not enough. You'll also note the following. Verse number 7 you might want to go ahead and hold your finger in that passage, for it's going to take a very careful point as we take a look at the next one, which will be point number three. Point number three that invites you to consider the following. Any person put to death, inclusive of the means of stoning, now brings us to verse number seven of Deuteronomy 17, wherein the text says, The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death and afterwards the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put the evil away from among you. In light of that passage, you and I can now conclude this. The woman was brought in the act of adultery, so they claimed. In order for her to be put to death, there had to be at least two witnesses. Those who could testify to the veracity of the fact that she was taken in adultery, and the man surely would have been brought under such a, under such a circumstance. But even if she had been taken in the act, those who had to cast the rocks first had to be the witnesses. Couldn't be just another general person. Couldn't be the supposed judge. It couldn't be the other individuals who in general would be ready to assist. It had to be the witnesses. I think we've now reached an interesting conclusion. There were a number of things, according to the law of Moses, that had to be true in order for this woman to be put to death. If we could review, first you would have expected the man to come as well. He didn't. The witnesses would have had to give their testimony, and notice Jesus allowed them to speak if they were there. Remember, He stooped over, wrote on the ground. And then He said, the first one that's without sin, let him cast a stone at her. If the witnesses were there, they should have taken the opportunity then to cast the stone. By the fact that they didn't, that might well lead us to conclude there were no witnesses to this event. It was only a claim on their part in order to entrap Jesus. Or if the witnesses in fact did exist and weren't there, then justice could not be meted either way. The necessary matters to put her to death were not under disposal. You'll notice this is beginning to sound very differently than the way this passage is used by many to teach situation ethics. It does nothing of the sort. As you close that slide with me, you'll note one other thing by what the Lord said. He said, He that's without sin, let him first cast a stone at her. Now remember, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew very well the kind of individuals that they were, and he knew, he knew the things of which they were guilty. Could it be? I'm simply asking. 
since the text does go on to say that their conscience is what convicted them, could it be that among those who had brought the woman that they themselves were guilty of adultery? Now, maybe not with this woman, but again, guilty of adultery, could it be? I would offer to you the thought, perhaps so. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And also Romans chapter 2, verse number 22. Here we have a direct statement from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And in fact, as we read on that occasion, Paul had something rather dramatic to say about the very concept of what's before us. Romans 2, verse number 1 reads as follows. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Now, as he spoke again about the character of those under discussion, and in this circumstance, again, it was those who were of Jewish extraction that would have been Pharisees. He said, don't you know that by your judging others, you're guilty of the same things? Now look at verse 22 to even draw the matter more of a possibility. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? So he asked them the question, You who say a man ought not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? In other words, it's quite possible that these who had dragged this woman before Jesus had themselves been guilty of this same thing of which they accused her. If that be true, what hypocrisy. What absolute hypocrisy. For that reason on that slide, may I just simply say that we've now seen a number of things that begin to call a lot of this into question. Perhaps a final lesson or two would then be in order. I've attempted to summarize them on this slide that's now before you. Much to the distinction of what's often claimed as it relates to this passage, this passage does not teach situation ethics. In fact, it teaches how seriously one should keep the law that God has given. Under the reality that the witnesses were not here and ready to cast the first stones, Jesus could not pronounce the death penalty on her. He had given the witnesses opportunity, and no one had stood up to act. Jesus was not the witness. He is not the one to have cast the stones. Now, isn't it interesting? This passage thus teaches in many ways just the opposite of what our world today might so often claim. And so the first point on that slide, God is concerned with law-keeping. And that's why the Lord approached this matter the way that He did. Not only that, you may note this. This passage does nothing along the sort of teaching situation ethics. There is no such thing as that. God's law is absolute. Recall with me Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Obedience is required. No one can enter heaven without it. May I say then that to use this passage in the way that sometimes it's used is nothing but blasphemy against not only Christ, but against the Word of God as well. The third point is this. It's important thus to judge in the right way. The Bible, in fact, demands it. Matthew 7, verse 20, as well as John 7, verse 24. 
to judge righteous judgment. These Pharisees that had brought this woman, remember, they did it to tempt Jesus. They weren't interested in justice. They were interested in something that they could use to accuse Jesus before the audience, before the people. Finally, Jesus agreed to the fact this woman had sinned. He said so, go and sin no more. She'd been guilty of sin. And under a different circumstance, it may well be she could have been put to death, but the man needed to be there. The witnesses had to be the ones that would take the first action. None of that was true on this occasion. No wonder in that lie. We arrive at the conclusion to our lesson tonight. A whole new perspective in some ways, I suppose, might then be ours about the woman taken in adultery. Almost exclusively, every time I've ever seen references to the passage, it's used to teach what we've learned tonight is not true. It's used to endorse situation ethics or used to endorse the fact God isn't interested in law-keeping. It's just the opposite. God is interested in law-keeping. And in fact, under the banner of the law of Moses, the woman was not in position to be put to death at that time. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. And as He did so, He allowed the opportunity for those witnesses to do that which was the order of the moment if the witnesses were there. Today, the lessons you and I can learn, surely is this, sin is significant. The Lord knew the woman's heart. He knew the things of which she had been guilty. And He ordered her to go and sin no more. Might those be pressing words for you and me? To go and sin no more. Whatever may have been the circumstances of our life, to learn from Jesus what the truth is to pursue that truth and live distant from that sinful behavior. Romans 6 verse 12 reminds us, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Could we use that as a final thought then to help us see we are under law today, but it's not the law of Moses, it's the law of Christ. Paul referred to it in Galatians 6 verse 2. He referred to it in 1 Corinthians 9 21. And you and I... If we expect to serve in the kingdom, the king has laws, a law in his kingdom. And we, with desire, strive to keep that law with purity and with truth and with obedience. Tonight in this assembly, if there's anyone that would wish to make a public response to the gospel, we'd like to make that opportunity available. To become a Christian, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized if though you would wish to come back to your first love, having once been a faithful Christian, that demands that you make confession of those errors, those sins, and furthermore, that you make repentance of them. If tonight we could help in that way, it would be our joy, our delight, our privilege, and we use this opportunity to make that issue available while together we stand and we sing the, the chosen song.